This morning we're continuing our sermon series, River Park Church Youth Put Faith to the Test. Our youth continue to ask good questions and help us to understand better the dimensions of our faith. A couple weeks ago I chatted with a few of our young people after the service and one of them said to me, God always seems to prioritize free will so you can do whatever you want. But this is a good thing, seems to me it's a good thing. But it's also part of why bad things happen. So this is our focus for this morning. Why does God do this? Looking at the problem of evil together. Up front, as we start this sermon, I want you to know that I'm relying heavily on a sermon uh, from Tim Keller in 1994, before I was in youth group. So young people... Uh, And older people too, it's good to learn from and watch the wisdom of those who have gone before us. As we begin looking at the problem of evil today, I want to encourage you also to turn your hearts and consider who uh, and what is good in your life. Who do you admire? Who do you hope to be more like and learn from? And how might you learn to be like that person? How might you spend more time with them or learn more about them? So with that in mind, with, as we reflect and consider on the people that God has put in our lives that are partners with us and even people walking ahead of us on the journey of faith, here's what we're going to focus on this morning. What does it mean to overcome evil with good? How do we do that? And finally, why do we do it? Where do we get the power and the, or the strength to do it? Our text this morning is Romans chapter 12. We're going to read verses 9 through 21. And so those words will be on the screen behind me, but you're also invited to open up your Bibles if you have them with you. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in spiritual zeal or fervor. Excuse me, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, then feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What does it mean to overcome evil with good? Well, in one of my favorite episodes of Doctor Who, a time traveler visits Vincent van Gogh in the end of the 1800s in France. Vincent van Gogh is an artist, and at this time in his life, he's depressed and discouraged. 
And so the doctor takes him to his future, to our present day, to help him see the effect that his art has on people. So when they get to the museum in Paris, when, where all his art is on display, the doctor, the time traveler, speaks to the curator. And we're just going to watch just about a minute clip to see what happens. Oh, yes. Glad to be of help. You were nice about my tie. Yes. And today is another cracker, if I may say so. But I just wondered, between you and me, in a uh, hundred words, where do you think Van Gogh rates in the history of art? Well, um, big question. Um, but to me, Van Gogh is the finest painter of the world. Certainly the most popular great painter of all time. The most beloved. His command of color, the most magnificent. He transformed the pain of his tormented life into ecstatic beauty. Pain is easy to portray, but to use your passion and pain to portray the ecstasy and joy and magnificence of our world, no one had ever done it before. Perhaps no one ever will again. To my mind, that strange, wild man who roamed the fields of Provence was not only the world's greatest artist, but also one of the greatest men who ever lived. If you want to see more, you have to watch the episode. I'm sorry. He transformed the pain of his tormented life into ecstatic beauty. That's, I, that idea, I think, is compelling to any and every person. Transforming pain and evil into beauty. We often think, wrongly, that to be a Christian is just to be a nice person. In reality, to be a Christian is to be totally reshaped, to, to, to be totally transformed in every area of our lives by the death and resurrection and the life of Jesus. Maybe practically this means that if someone asks you, are you a Christian, and you are a Christian, the best response might be to say that, well, I'm still becoming a Christian. In other words, we always live as people in process. We always continue to be reshaped and transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And there's always some other area or part of our lives or our world that needs to become more like Jesus. I start here with this idea of transformation as we look at the problem of evil because all major world religions and most secular societies recognize some basic facts about the nature of humanity and of evil. We all agree, basically, that theft and murder and selfishness are wrong to name a few. And still, in every culture, people steal and kill and act in self-interest. In other words, everywhere in our world, there exists a gap, a gap between how we agree is best to live our life and how we actually live our lives. The problem of evil is the question of what to do with that gap. How do we respond when somebody violates one of those basic rules 
for how, how to live our lives, those basic rules of fair play. How do we respond? How do I react when someone hurts me for what seems like no good reason? How do I react or respond when I have hurt someone else? And what's more, how do we take the evil and pain of our world and come up with something that's actually beautiful and worthwhile? As Tim Keller says, this is where Jesus breaks out of the pack. Jesus says things like, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. And Paul adds, do not be, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus breaks out of the pack when it comes to the problem of evil, not because people think that he's crazy or strange, but because Jesus' strategy for dealing with the problem of evil is so different than every other strategy. It's so lofty. Jesus says things like, turn the other cheek, bless those who persecute you. So Jesus' strategy doesn't usually get criticized because it's so lofty. Instead, Jesus' strategy usually gets dismissed because it seems so unrealistic, so impossible. So what does it mean for us as Christians to overcome evil with good? And is it unrealistic or can we actually do it? Well, Paul's word here in Romans 12 at the end of our passage for overcome is an aggressive word. It's a military word. And I know that probably very few of us know Greek, but all of you know this word. The word is Nike. Nike is the Greek word for military victory. And it's also the goddess of military victory. And uh, the, the shoes came much later as far as I could tell. Romans recognized, the, the, the Roman people recognized what we know well today. That if you want to defeat an enemy, if you want to overcome an enemy, you have to defeat them entirely. You have to take away their source of power. And so to overcome evil, we need to defeat evil entirely. It's an incredibly aggressive approach to evil that Paul is advocating and also that Jesus will see is advocating. As we get into it here, I want to point out that almost certainly the Bible has more of an, a more aggressive approach to evil than you or I do. We might be slightly worried about sin or evil in our world, but God is very serious about it. He's serious about the effects of sin and the damages of evil in our world. To overcome the enemy of evil... God desires to defeat it entirely. So how do we do that? How do we do that as God's people? Well, in short, this passage that we just read earlier, Romans chapter 12, has four ways or methods, and we're going to touch on each one this morning. First, to hate or abhor evil. Second, a humble spirit. Third, blessing words. And fourth, a forgiving heart. Paul says as our text opens, hate what is evil. The word hate in English is unfortunately less than helpful because hate carries a very negative connotation, doesn't it? But older translations of the Bible use the word abhor. We don't use the word abhor anymore, but we do use the word horror, which is the same word as abhor, horror. 
To abhor something is to be horrified at it and angered by it, especially by injustice. This is again where Jesus' way breaks out from the pack. Jesus is horrified by injustice, but he's not interested in his own ego, in self-preservation. See, we are almost always the opposite way, aren't we, as people? We are always worried about our own ego and what's going to happen to me and less bothered by injustice. Jesus is horrified at the temple that people are using his father's house as a place to cheat others and enrich themselves. And so Jesus becomes angry. Jesus is horrified and grieved by death at the grave of his friend Lazarus. So again, he becomes angry. Jesus is always horrified by sin and angry with the destruction that evil causes, so much so that he becomes angry far more than you or I ever do. This is because love and anger are not opposites. One uh, writer, E.F. Gifford, puts it this way. He says, The more that a father loves his son, the more he hates in his son the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. In other words, the more that we love someone or something, the more passionate we are about protecting it, defending it, keeping destruction and evil far from the person or the people we love. In other words, young people, God is more serious about the problem of evil than you are and we are. The Old Testament especially tells us of God's great anger towards sin, but also of God's great love for his people. God does not dismiss sin or evil as a small thing or as a minor inconvenience. Because of his great love for you, God sees evil as a destructive force that it is. And God has dedicated himself to eradicating it entirely. Righteous anger toward evil comes from a deep love for others. In order to overcome evil with good, we need to recognize that evil is more the enemy than the evildoer. This doesn't mean that people don't do wrong to one another and that people can't be our enemies. But it does mean that the problem of e- or the solution to the problem of evil is not to get rid of other people. The solution to the problem of evil is to rid the world of evil and to rid people of evil. The second thing we need to do to, to overcome evil with good is a humble spirit. This is the heart, this humble spirit is the heart of Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 5, and I accidentally skipped over that part, but Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And that humble spirit is the, the heart of Jesus' command. It's also the part of the response that seems the most unrealistic or ridiculous to us. But before we write it off, let's understand a little bit better what Jesus is and what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. The best way to understand what Jesus means when he says to turn the other cheek is to recognize that when somebody slaps your cheek, they're not attacking you physically. We have Taekwondo classes here at River Park. We have Aikido classes here. And I have never heard one of the instructors say, now your first move is to slap your opponent in the face. 
If you're having a physical fight with someone and you slap them in the face, they're going to punch your lights out. Somebody who slaps you is not attacking you physically. They are assaulting your honor, your pride, your value. It's an insult, not an injury. And what do we do when that happens? What do we do when someone insults us? Well, our normal way of interacting with evil is we do one of two things. In the first way, we respond in kind. So somebody slaps me, somebody insults me, so I just insult them right back. Somebody takes something from me, so I talk about them behind their back and tell all my friends what they did. We think that Jesus' model is unrealistic or we don't consider it. And so evil proliferates. In the first way, we just add evil to evil. In the second way, we try to absorb the evil into ourselves. We don't want to respond at all. We tell ourselves that we're, we're peacemaking people. We don't want to make a big deal of things. So we do nothing. We try not to react. Somebody hurts me and I say nothing. Somebody offends my honor and I carry on silently or maybe even withdraw. But when we do it this way, we end up showing nothing on the outside, but burning up on the inside. Fair enough. This is the model, in extreme case, of somebody who's being abused. Don't react. Don't respond. Don't let anybody see what's going on. But then we're thinking about it constantly. We're consumed by our anger and our pain and our hurt. What's worse, we allow the evil and the evildoer to continue unchecked. We don't stop it. And so evil continues maybe to directly affect us or maybe to affect other people. And if we continue long enough and do nothing, then eventually, like an abused person, we snap. We can't take it anymore. Turning the other cheek has to mean, at least, that... The, that the insult can't continue, right? That if you turn the cheek, then the, the cheek isn't available to be slapped anymore. But it also means that we are open to re-establishing the relationship, that we're not going to shun or avoid people. Turning the other cheek means we're essentially we're saying that this can't continue, but I care for you enough to work this out, or to use Paul's words, to try as far as it depends on me to work this out. In other words, turning the other cheek is about being concerned for justice, but not being concerned about our own ego. We stop the aggressor from continuing, but we seek to restore the person and the relationship even at cost to ourselves. When we turn the other cheek, we heap burning coals on our enemy's head. That's the phrase that Paul uses in our text. And in the simplest way, probably all of us already know what this means. If some, somewhere this weekend already, or maybe uh, tonight or tomorrow, you're going to be sitting around a campfire, imagine that you just sort of enjoy the peace and the beauty of the fire and you, you nod off. Oh, there's the yawn coming. And now imagine that somebody throws a bunch of coals on your head. It's going to wake you up, right? That's what Paul is saying. When you, when you heap coals on somebody's head, you're jolting them awake. 
This is exactly what we're trying to do when we take an aggressive stance toward evil, but a loving stance toward a person. We're trying to help them see that the evil and sin is harming us, but also that we are committed to helping them because the evil is more the problem than the evildoer. You see, here's the thing. If we can wake someone up, if you can jolt someone awake to the reality of evil in their own life, then they may choose to stop doing it. And if they try and stop doing it, then we have gained an ally in our fight against evil. This is why Paul says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You see, the Bible is incredibly realistic about evil. That when we turn the other cheek, when we say, no, this can't continue, but I still care about you, we may not be able to wake someone else up. We might be, but we can only do as much as it depends on us. What we will do, however, is stop the evil from continuing on its course, from affecting us and perhaps even affecting others. The third thing that our text goes to is blessing words. Bless and do not curse, Paul says. A curse is not about profanity. It's not about using uh, nasty words that you feel like you're not supposed to say in church. In Jesus' words, a curse is, or in Jesus' world, a curse is a cut. Blessing is building something up. Cursing is cutting it down. There's more to say, but we're already running out of time. And so if you're considering making this way of Jesus your way, and I hope you are, you need to know that the way of Jesus will be difficult. That it is always more difficult to build something up or someone up rather than to cut it down. And as we close in just a little bit, we'll come back to how we do this difficult thing. But before we do that, I want to move on to the last part of how we do this, a forgiving heart. Forgiveness, uh, Paul says in those last few verses, verses 17 to 20, he says, forgive, uh, where is it? He calls us to forgive. And forgiveness, I think it's important to say, is always granted before it's felt. The problem of evil and sin is a problem of being in somebody else's debt. Because we've taken something or broken something or withheld something, something else is owed or required in its place. We take some candy and so we owe payment. We take a life and we owe another life in its place. We withhold our attention from others by focusing on ourselves. We're required to attend to others. Paul reminds us of what God says in the Old Testament. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so Paul says, do not repay evil for evil. Justice and vengeance are about repayment in the Bible. But forgiveness recognizes that whatever somebody else owes me pales in comparison to what I owe God. That whatever debt somebody has racked up against you, whatever they've taken from you or withheld from you, whatever they've, they've hurt you, pales in comparison 
to what you have done and I have done to offend God. And so forgiveness is a decision that rather than exacting what is owed to me, I will allow God to collect on my debts. I will transfer to God the balance that is owed to me. And He can do what is best with what is owed now to Him. You see, forgiveness doesn't mean that I, or forgiveness means that I don't get to bring up old debts again. I don't get to bring them up to the other person who wronged me. I don't get to bring them up to other people in the community. And the hardest one, I don't get to bring them up to myself. I don't bring them up to the other person directly saying, you owe me. But neither do I get to carp or complain and say, oh, you're always this way. Likewise, I don't become cold and withdrawn or try to score points for myself. These are all ways that we try to exact payment from other people. Continuing on, we don't gossip. I don't get to gossip to others or exact what is owed for me that way. Say, oh, this person did this thing to me. You wouldn't believe it. When people don't pay us or give us what we think is owed to us, often we'll try and find other people who will give us what we want. And finally, as I said, the most difficult one, I don't get to bring it up with my, again to myself. I don't get to go over and over again in my mind all the ways this person has wronged me. I don't get to have imaginary fights in the shower. That's where I have them anyway. Where, where I have arguments with the other person who's not there and allow them to wound me again and again and again. When we're wronged, we can either exact the debt ourselves or let God do it. Leave the whole thing to God. And if God has forgiven you radically, people of God, then you can pass over any ability that you have, that we have to charge a debt to someone else. You can pass it back to God. We may not feel like forgiving, especially at first, but out of the decision to forgive, grant, God grants us a new focus, a new attitude. And out of that different attitude, we find this balance between hatred of evil and also humble love for the other person. And let me just say before we move on that that is an impossibly difficult balance. It's too difficult for us. We, 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 we can never get it right. Either we end up reacting to evil or we end up being controlled by it. One of the authors who I used to enjoy, Garrison Keillor, had a great line back in the day. He said, when I was a kid, I hated my parents' rules so much that when I grew up, I became exactly like them. His point was to say that his parents' rules became the guidelines for his life. So every time his parents said no, he said yes. Every time they determined some limit and said no, go the other way, he ran toward it. But it was exactly the same factors that determined the course of his life. 
Every time we bring up a debt again, either directly to the person or indirectly to others or even in our own hearts, we think that we're taking an aggressive stance that we just won't let it go. But in actuality, we're being controlled and directed by the evil that was done to us. We're responding to evil with evil. Well, that just increases evil. And being passive toward it means that evil continues unchecked and even begins to control us. See, forgiveness is the only way to be free from the cycle of evil and the problem of evil. It's the only way that you'll actually be in control of your life. Anything less than the most aggressive battle against evil, coupled with the deepest love for others, anything less than that, and we will be overcome by evil. Now, maybe you can intellectually agree that maybe the pastor is right today. Maybe this really is the only way. But it still seems impossible. It still seems like the balance is too perfect, like this is something that only Jesus can do. So as we close this morning, I want to There's a lot more that I could say, but I want to say just two things about why we do this, why we try to do this, through what strength and what power we can do it. Brothers and sisters, as we close, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. We have the intellectual and the spiritual resources to overcome evil with good. For the intellectual resources, Just consider for a moment that if God wanted love without justice or justice without love, he didn't need the cross. Jesus dying on the cross is proof that evil is, or that God takes evil far more seriously than we do. When we don't take sin and evil seriously, we come up with weak solutions. We misidentify the causes of sin and evil because we don't see the problem as being all that big a deal. Jesus dying for us on the cross means that God is serious about overcoming evil and serious about loving us. The cross reminds us too that balancing love and justice is costly. It was costly for God and it will be costly for you too if you choose to follow the way of Jesus. It's costly every day. To, to say to yourself, stop bringing that up. I'm not going to hold that against her. I'm not going to talk about him, even though he hurt me. It's costly to forgive and to follow Jesus. But the cross also reminds us that our struggle against evil is not a struggle we face alone, not as individuals and not even as a community. Earlier in the sermon, I mentioned Paul's words, bless and do not curse and how a curse is a cut. To use the most beautiful analogy from our world that I can think of, in order to graft a new branch into a tree, we've got gardeners in our church, you know how this works. A tree has to be cut. And the deeper the cut, the more fully that new branch will be grafted in. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says, I was cut, and I was cursed so that you can come in. 
Each of us is such a beautiful and unique uh, balance and mix of dignity and depravity. We have different talents and gifts, different brokennesses and needs. We all bear different fruit. Yet Jesus was cut for each of us, for each of you, for all of us. He was cut so that you could come in. He was cursed so that you could share in the honor of God the Father. When we cut others, we're trying to get them to fit in to to us. But Christians are not called to fit in together just as like a social club. Christians are called to fit in to Christ. And so there's this beautiful picture that is going to be on the screen behind me, this tree that an art professor in the United States has cut many different times. He's worked on this for over a decade and at this point has more than 40 different kinds of fruit all grafted into the same tree. It's a beautiful tree and there's videos online. You can look it up, Google a few keywords, and you'll find that it blooms different colors at different weeks of the year and bears all kinds of fruit. And it's not just one tree. He's got hundreds of these. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of all of us with our different colors and shapes, different abilities and limits grafted in to the true vine. See, when we see the cost of what Jesus did for us, then we can forgive as well. When we see how deeply Jesus was cut for me, we don't need to cut others anymore. No matter what people have done to me, we can say to ourselves, it's nothing compared to what I did to him. The beauty that I can create on my own, the honor or the good name that I can create for myself, is nothing compared to the beauty of being a part of God's family, being grafted into the tree of Christ. As we close, I want to say one more thing, which is the cross changes our self-image. All of us, and especially our young people, wrestle with our self-image, our seeing ourselves and understanding ourselves in our world, comparing ourselves to others. If you're a Christian, you lost face once and for all when you admitted that you were a sinner. You agreed publicly that you were a sinner and, and you brought Jesus in. But now... Now that you're grafted into Christ, the things that are done to you is not your honor, it's not your reputation, it's not your record. It's what Jesus has done for you that is your honor. Without Jesus, all you have is what other people will attack. But if Jesus is your honor, then your peace and your beauty, then no one can attack the real you. It's safe. It's hidden with God in Christ. So when evil is done to you, you can know that it will be avenged by God. And you can rest, for, rest secure knowing that your honor, your face is safe with God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, turning the other cheek is not only possible, but inevitable when we let Jesus be the center of our lives. Then he will do beautiful things with you, with me, and with all of us. Let's come to him in prayer. Father God, 
we spend some extra time this morning looking at the problem of evil because it's such a big problem. It's such a deep problem and all of our solutions fall short. We can so easily be overwhelmed. We can flee or we quick respond rashly to fight. Teach us, Lord, that your ways are better than ours. Remind us that we can overcome evil with good, not in our own strength or through our own power, but by being grafted into your family, by receiving and keeping, receiving the honor that you give us, receiving the new life that you offer us, and sharing that with others. So that even as we battle fiercely against evil in our world, we can yet love those who do evil to us and wake them up, even as you wake us up and give us new life. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for our sins, to share your honor and your new life with us through his resurrection. And God, we ask that the mind of Christ would fill us Today, this weekend, and every day, even as we come to you in prayer and sing these words in song once again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.